Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We're going to begin Romans chapter 8 this morning. You can find that printed in your bulletin on page 8. If you'd like to follow along in a pew Bible, it's printed there on page, or it's found on page 944. It's also printed on page 944. Or you can find that in your Bibles this morning. Romans chapter 8. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. Well, for the last several months, I've found myself in a new stage of life, uh, teaching a teenage child to drive. Uh, That's been interesting. Um, Piper is doing a great job, and I have her permission to share this story. Any embellishment is surely for dramatic effect. She's doing wonderfully. Uh, But the whole experience has been teaching me a lot about myself and about driving. Some of it is just how complex the driving process really is. There's a lot of nuance that we just kind of instinctively um, function on, and watching someone else learn that is interesting. And she's progressed a lot through this, and we've done things like driving on the freeway and learning that technique of you let up on the brake when you come to a stop so your head doesn't do this. And there's just all kinds of little things Uh, to learn. But we had an experience not too long ago that reminded me of how foundational um, parts of driving are very important, how important the foundations of driving are. And so Piper was taking me on an errand, and we came over to a part of town that we haven't really driven on before, and we turned onto an unfamiliar street, and this street had four lanes, which we've done four-lane roads quite a bit, right? You have two on one side, two on the other side of the yellow line. Um, But this time, as we took a left turn onto this four-lane road, we stayed in the second lane from the left, which means the yellow line was here, and we were driving down the wrong side of the road. And once I quickly realized that we weren't in England, but that this was a problem, um, I was trying to get the words, and something came out like, get over there! (laughs) And then as my heart rate kind of settled back down, I think I said something like, do you see the yellow line? We always have to stay to the right of the yellow line. Like, just find that yellow line and we'll be okay. Um, My heart's pounding already, just kind of reminding (laughs) me. Thanks, Piper, for letting me share that. Um, In many ways, Romans 8 is like that yellow line that helps us find our position in the Christian life. The Christian life is a journey, and it's filled with many ups and downs, changes, curves in the road, going faster and slower, different emotions and circumstances. And all of this, Paul is going to show us as we go forward in the book, they're all to be traveled according to the vantage point of what it means to be in Christ. What has happened in our lives as believers? And in particular today, what it means to be in Christ in relation to having the Holy Spirit. And so Paul begins unpacking this in Romans 8, and we're going to spend multiple weeks here because it's one of the most glorious parts of Scripture, but also because it is our North Star. It is where we find our bearing for all the complexities of living out the Christian life until our Lord Jesus returns. And so let me read our passage, Romans 8. I'll I'll read verses 1 through 11, then we'll pray, and then we'll take a look at these glorious truths that are so helpful for us to know. 
This is God's word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask that he help us as we consider the wonders of this passage this morning. Our Father in heaven, as we come to your word, we're immediately humbled by it, for it is your word, and you are God, and we are creatures, and these things are far beyond us. And so we ask for your help, that by your spirit, you'd help us to understand the things that you long for us to know of who you are, what you have done for us in Christ, and what it means that even now, as we sit here hearing your word preached, that we are indwelt by the very spirit of the living God. Will you encourage us, strengthen our faith, meet us where we are, whether that's in doubt or in joy, whether that's in fear or sorrow or pride or sin that needs to be convicted of. We pray that you would meet us and do your work by your spirit. It's in Christ's name we ask. Amen. Well, as we look at this passage this morning, we'll do so in in three points. Um, First, we'll consider your new verdict. Then we'll consider your new ability. And then third, we'll consider your new life. So new verdict, new ability, and new life. First, let's consider your new verdict in Christ. And we find that primarily in verses 1 through 3. Paul begins this section with an emphatic contrast to the miserable condition that he's just described in Romans 7. It's so hard as we break this book up uh, week by week that we can kind of lose the flow of Paul's argument here. But do you remember the wretched, defeated state that Paul was describing of life apart from Christ in Romans 7? And it it leaves you wanting to cry out with the unsaved Paul and all of those who in history have felt the experience of wanting to please God but finding no ability to do so. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And on the heels of that comes this pronouncement 
in chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those are absolutely amazing words. Uh, It says, now, and so it's showing us that things are different from when we were not in Christ. Things are different now for those who are in Christ. Condemnation, Paul says, is off the table. There is none of it. But how did this happen? It's important to just pause and consider how these glorious words that we so often recite, how they came to be. And Paul succinctly shows us how this came about. And in verse 3, what we see is God has done everything to bring about this state of no condemnation for all who are trusting in Jesus Christ. There we see the words, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, that could sound like a lot of words, uh, or maybe we hear flesh a lot. Maybe it's not sinking in right as we hear it, but I want to break it down because in just these few short phrases, Paul summarizes so much of the gospel, and he summarizes it with these, we have theological handles for some of the things he's saying that I want to bring to our attention because they are truths that are so precious to us that we need to have drilled into our hearts as that north star of what has taken place for us in the gospel. One of the first things that Paul describes there is what we call the incarnation, the the Son of God taking on flesh, the enfleshing of the Son of God. You notice it there, God the Son was sent by the Father in the likeness of sinful flesh. And that phrase there, in the likeness, is just a beautiful phrase that that Paul so wisely puts there. And it doesn't mean that Jesus just seemed to be human. Oh, he's in the likeness of humanness, but he's really a hologram or something. No, in speaking this way, Paul maintains that Jesus had a full human nature just like us. A full human nature with all of the weaknesses and all of the frailty of the human condition in Adam. And yet, he says, in the likeness of sinful flesh, because there's one way in which Jesus was different from us in his humanity, he was without sin. He was therefore in the likeness of sinful flesh. And so Paul summarizes right there the doctrine of the incarnation, the Son being sent and taking on flesh. But he not only speaks of the incarnation, but also of the atonement, of what Jesus came to do when he became incarnate. It says he was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. And then there's that little phrase, and for sin. The reason, brothers and sisters, that Jesus came was to deal with sin. And our understanding of that's only enhanced by by coming to understand that this little phrase, for sin, is actually used all throughout the Greek translation of the Old Testament to speak of the sin offering that the people of Israel would bring before God in the tabernacle so that that their sin could be dealt with and so that they could draw near in fellowship to God. You see, what we see here is that the reason that God sent the Son was for him to be the true Lamb of God, 
the atoning sacrifice, the one who would pay the punishment for our sins so that we could draw near to God. And in doing all of this, it brought about the most amazing result. It says, God condemned sin. God condemned sin. Now that's an interesting turn of phrase, isn't it? As we think of what we've been hearing in Romans and as we think of what sin was doing and how sin was even hijacking the law, sin at every turn was shouting condemnation at us for every failure that we committed. Every sin, every good thing we failed to do, sin was right there saying, you deserve God's punishment. You deserve condemnation. But in sending his son, God flipped it all around. And he was able then to condemn or execute judgment upon sin itself. It says he condemned sin in the flesh. What that's referring to there is he condemned sin in the very body of our Lord Jesus who came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus who bore our sin bore the punishment and the condemnation for that sin. And so therefore God was able to render it powerless now over us in Christ. One of the ways that we could envision this sort of, that seems to capture this idea, is it's as though Jesus sucked the poison of sin from us and he drew it into its, its venom into his own flesh where it was denounced and where it was defeated through his sacrificial death. Because in it, as one who lived completely righteously and was sinless, he was able to take on our sin so that all of its condemnation could be borne by him. And in this way, God condemned, rendered powerless sin. And so what that means is this. God is now able to say to sin, you're done. (laughs) You now no longer have anything to say about my people. You cannot breathe a word of condemnation about them. It is off the table because it was condemned in the flesh of my son as he bore their sin for them. That is why Paul can say, There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God has come up with a solution so that condemnation, punishment, is off the table for God's people. It's no longer a possibility for those who are in Christ. Cancel culture... Uh, is a phenomenon that we seem to be experiencing more and more in our day. And it's this dynamic by which um, you say or do something that's deemed unacceptable by people, and as a result, you're ostracized, boycotted, or shunned. And I think what cancel culture has really put on display for us, and it, it happens all around, it's happening on both sides of the political aisle, conservative, progressive, Christians, non-Christians, it's happening everywhere as a phenomenon. But what it's highlighting for us is this deep fear that we have and struggle with. This fear that something in our past might come out or we might do something in the future 
that will make those who once affirmed us, who supported us, who were on our side, turn against us, right? And so that's something that we all live with now. And our young people have never known a time when this was not a phenomenon. This is the world in which they live. This, this used to be something that occurred mainly for public figures or politicians, but now because of the internet, it's everywhere. And it, I think it helps us be compassionate to some of the anxieties and fears that our young people fear, uh, feel just growing up in a world where this is a constant threat. But what Paul is saying here is he's addressing something. It's easy for us to live our Christian lives thinking that our relationship with God is just as uncertain as the cancel culture all around us. You know, we may have this idea that, sure, when when I came to faith in Christ, I confessed my sin to God and he saw those sins and he forgave them, but then we may have some sort of an, an image of God up in heaven with his omniscient Instagram feed, just kind of scrolling, right? Scrolling through that feed. Actually, I think it's like this, whatever. He's scrolling somehow over all these things. And there's this implicit fear within us of what if I do something now? What if I continue in that sin that I I told him I would never do again? What if there's something I forgot that I had done? What if I do something going forward that I never thought I would ever do? Will he cancel me? What will happen with my relationship with him. Paul wants us to see that the phrase no condemnation means that the relationship that matters most in your life, your relationship with God, it's not a part of cancel culture. He will never turn on you. There's no knee-jerk reaction and then he has to go and delete some tweets that he wrote when he found out something new about what you've done. It means sin's power to bring punishment and condemnation for you is gone. Can we just let that sink in for a moment? These are words that I find we say quite a bit um, because they're so wondrous. There's no condemnation. But do we really believe them and believe that they're true of us? So could you walk through this with me for just a moment? I want you to stop and think about the thing or things that you have said or done or thought that you are most ashamed of in your life. The things that you feel the most guilt over. The things that you would never want to show up on anyone's social media feed. The things you wish the God of heaven didn't even know. Do you have those things in your mind? Paul says to you, in God's very word, that he sent his son so that that very thing could now no longer bear condemnation for you. And as you bring those things to God in confession and seeking forgiveness, you know what his response to you is? Yes, I knew that. I know that sin and all that took place in it better than you even do. But my son bore that sin in his flesh 
so that every ounce of punishment or wrath could be drained from it so that I can look upon you in pure love, adoration, affection, and welcome. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's an amazing verdict, an amazing change that has been brought about not because God had to, but because of his love for you and because he in his love will never change that verdict towards you because of what Jesus has done. We could stop there and just soak that in. Let's have the Lord's Supper now, right? But there's even more. That's just the first few verses of Romans 8. Paul says, I have way more to tell you about the wonder of what God has done for you. He doesn't just stop with this new verdict. Remember, our problem isn't just our punishment or the condemnation for the sins that we've done. It's also that we who are in Adam can't do anything to change it. We can't do anything in and of ourselves to now change our hearts to somehow live in a way that's in service and love to God because we're under the reign of sin and death. But Paul wants us to see that now, in the Spirit, God has also completely changed that situation. You not only have a new verdict, which we just spoke about, but secondly, we see you have a new ability. You have a new ability, and that's found primarily in verses 4 through 9. In order to explain this, Paul lays out that there are two states of existence. All people in human history exist in one of two realms. They are either in the flesh or they are in the spirit. And being in the spirit is what happens when one is in Christ. And we'll see that more as we go. And Paul wants us to understand the conditions of both of these states so that we can especially see the wonder of what it means to now be in the Spirit. So notice, first of all, what he says about those who are in the flesh. In in verses 5 through 8, he succinctly summarizes what he's been explaining all along. Being in the flesh is the same as being in Adam. It's it's the same as being under the reign of sin and death. And, And we could summarize what he says here with two, again, theological phrases total depravity, and total inability. He, he lays out how apart from Christ, we are totally depraved, not meaning we're as bad as we could be, but meaning this, sin's reign has affected every part of us in Adam. In this section, he talks about how it affects our minds, making them hostile to God, turning us inward on ourselves and leading to death. It not only affects our minds, but it affects everything that we do. He says, our walk of life is one that's oriented toward death. As we've seen before, it's bearing the fruit of death. And so every part of us, mind and walk and body and soul, has been affected by Adam's fall. We're totally depraved. But then he also really highlights here total inability. Left to ourselves, we're completely unable to do anything about it. In verse 7, he says that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. 
And then he says it's because it doesn't submit to God's law. The reason the mind doesn't submit to God's law, he goes on to say, is because it cannot submit to God's law. Why? Verse 8, those who are in the flesh, those who are still in their sin in Adam, they cannot please God. Now this isn't saying that people who are in the flesh, people who are not believers, can't do relatively good things. There's all kinds of relative good that can be done. But our confession summarizes so well what the rest of Scripture shows us, that works by unbelievers are ultimately not pleasing to God because they're not done in faith and they're not done to his glory. That's something that only the work of the Spirit can bring about in our hearts to make the things that we do truly pleasing and in accord with the holiness of God. And so that's the situation, the bad news that we've been talking about so many times, right, throughout this section of those who are in the flesh. But what Paul really wants us to see is the difference of a believer's life. Because if you are trusting in Christ, you are in Christ, and for Paul to be in Christ is to be in the Spirit. Notice what he says in verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. Now I have to pause here for just a moment and say, you know, throughout verses 9, 10, and 11, Paul's going to use these if statements, right? And um, I tend when I hear to when I hear if statements to think, well, we'll see, (laughs) don't really know. Um, But the Greek grammar and then the context, and I'm I'm not going to go into all the details to prove it here, but those two things together make it incredibly clear for us, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Paul's not saying, well, we'll see, but what he is saying is, since you are in Christ, you are in the Spirit. These ifs are not expressing, we don't know, They're his way of writing to say, if you're in Christ, this is what is true of you. This is how it is. And notice that what he says is, because you are in the Spirit, you are now able to please God. Everything that sin hijacked, the Spirit now takes back. Every part of us that had been affected by depravity is now freed and being transformed by the Spirit. In verse 6, we find out that our minds are no longer hostile to God and directing us toward death, but instead, in the Spirit, our minds are coming to know the life and the peace that we now have with God. Our actions used to be walking according to the flesh, But verse 4 says that the reason that God dealt with our sins in Christ was in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now that's quite a thought, right? Why was it that God went through dealing with sin and rendering the verdict of no condemnation. Well, part of the purpose of that was that we could live different lives. The righteous requirement of the law, which we could, set, we could summarize of love of God and love of neighbor, is now being fulfilled in us 
because we now walk according to the Spirit. This goes back to what we heard in our scripture reading. The Old Testament promise of the Spirit was that God would pour out his Spirit and would make the law something that is no longer external to us. But through the Spirit, we would be given new hearts and the law would become internal to us. The law written upon our hearts in such a way that the Spirit is animating now the ability to not only know this orientation of love of God and love of neighbor, but the Spirit now enabling us to more and more walk in love of God and love of neighbor. He gave us a new heart and wrote his law upon it so that we can actually do it in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That fulfillment is not perfectly now. (laughs) If we just think about your morning coming here and what you thought and did, I don't think anyone would come forward saying, perfectly fulfilled, love of God, love of neighbor so far. And we're only a few hours into the day. We've got plenty of time (laughs) to keep going, right? And so when we hear that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, what that means is it is starting to be fulfilled in us even now as by the Spirit. We are growing in those things, but it also means the goal of all of this is that one day by the Spirit, we would perfectly fulfill the law of God as those who all eternity love God perfectly and love neighbor perfectly in eternal life with him forever. But what that means now, believer, is that you are now in the Spirit and you now have an ability that you never had before, an ability to obey and serve God, not in dependence upon yourself, but in dependence upon the very Spirit of God who dwells in you and is showing you and empowering you in these ways. I don't know if I'm just a negative person. I try and tell myself I'm a realist. That somehow makes it feel better. But um, I notice that one of the things that I do, and as I talk to other Christians, I feel like I'm not alone in this, but we often focus on how much of the law we're not keeping, don't we? You know, it's good to confess how we failed to love God and neighbor. Confession is something that's very helpful in the Christian life, saying the same as how God views it and then it throwing us upon his grace. We as believers live in a state where we are still able to sin. That has not yet changed. One day it will. But we are also now able to live in a Christ-like, godly way. And it's just as important for us to see all of the evidence of God's Spirit and God's Spirit's work in us, enabling us to do things that glorify God. We face every moment of every day, not as a life or death test of what we will do, but instead as this reality that every good thing that flows out of us is now evidence of God's acquittal and evidence of the Spirit's life within us. Do you see the Christian life 
that way? Do you find yourself consumed with, well, failed there, failed there, failed there. My heart's not right there. That word sure wasn't loving. And waking up and and finding yourself thinking, okay, another day to glorify God. Let's see what I can do. Or do you find yourself saying, I'm waking up realizing that I am now in the Spirit and that everything that flows out of me that's in accord with the character of our Lord Jesus Christ is further evidence that God is at work indwelling me by his spirit and has given me an ability that I never had before. And pausing and thanking God for the spirit's work. Every time you experience love toward God, even if it ebbs and flows and it's waning, even if it's you crying out, God, I don't love you enough. I want to love you more. Do you know what that is? That's the spirit within you saying, orient your life toward the love of God. Every time you feel conviction of sin over what you've done, and especially as we grow in the Christian life and we find just conviction growing more and more because we see more and more how far we fall short, that conviction is the spirit's law writing work upon our hearts saying, no, that's not quite it. You were made for more than this when you show restraint of yourself and your own desires, when you think of another person above yourself, when any semblance of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, or self-control, any semblance of that comes out of you. That means the Spirit is enabling you now out of a new heart to be living in the way you were made to live. God is doing his renewing work in you. And we can pause at that and just say, thank you. Help me to depend upon the work of your spirit more and more. And this wondrous gift I have of this new ability. And so in Christ and in the spirit, we have a new verdict. In the spirit, we have a new ability. But then the last thing that I'd like us to see this morning is that you also have a new life. You have a new life. Paul wants us to see that being in the Spirit means that you, believers, have life like never before. One of the things that I think is so complicated about the Christian life that really trips trips us up, just like saying that, right? Is how much everything just looks and feels the same. You come to Christ, it may feel a little bit different at first, but then as life goes on, you start to wonder, has anything changed? But Paul wants us to see that yellow line of this amazing fact, you have been forever changed because of what the Spirit has done in you. And there are are two things I just want us to see about this new life. First, you are indwelt by God. You know, back in chapter 17, or chapter 7, verse 18, Paul says, nothing good dwells in me. And now he says in verse 9, the Spirit of God dwells in you, believers. 
Those who belong to Christ have the spirit of Christ, he says. In verse 10, he says, Christ is in you and the spirit of God himself dwells in you. He says that two times in in verse 11. And without going into all the profundity of Trinitarian indwelling, we can just think about this. In a way that's impossible for us to fully comprehend, we have become caught up in Trinitarian life through our relationship with to Christ. We are in Christ, Paul says, and now Christ is in us by the Spirit. We are in the Spirit, and now the Spirit dwells within us. And this doesn't mean that Christ and the Spirit are the same person. Both are distinct persons of the Trinity sharing in the divine essence, but their work is so bound up together that Christ is now indwelling us by the Spirit. And as Peter says, we have become partakers in the divine nature. We are not divine in ourselves. We are creatures, but somehow through the work of God, we share in divinity as we are indwelt by the God of heaven. You know, it's easy to get caught up in the how questions of all this, right? Well, how is that, that I'm in Christ and Christ is in me, but that's by the Spirit? And like, we could go on forever there, right? but we can lose the significance of what it means that we're indwelt by the living God because we're indwelt by the Spirit of God. Think of what that says about the thoroughness of Christ's work in your life, how complete it must really be. You think back to the Old Testament and you think of what the high priest had to do, all that he had to go through, to enter into the Holy of Holies one day a year. All the purification, all the cleansing. And even at that, he wore bells around him so you could tell if he stopped moving and there was a rope around him so they could drag him out in case he missed something and was consumed by the holy presence of God. And Paul says, Jesus' work for you was so thorough that you not only come into the holy holies, holy of holies, but in a sense you have become the holy of holies, as God himself is able to indwell you with his glory by the Spirit. What an amazing thing that the work of Christ has done. One day, the entire creation will be the temple of God, right? All of it declaring his glory as he dwells perfectly with us and in all of creation. But God, once again, dwelling with his people, it started in you already by the Spirit. And so you are indwelt by God. That's part of your new life. But then you also have resurrection life. You have resurrection life. Paul says there in verse 10, he says that the Spirit is life because of righteousness. It's again helpful to understand the Old Testament context of the promise of the Spirit. The promise of the Spirit that was given as as we heard it in Ezekiel, it comes in the context of the promise of resurrection, when the Spirit would come, those, that valley of dry bones would start to be assembled together and come back to life. The people of God would be raised in resurrection life by the Spirit of God. And what Paul says that's true <laughs> is that this has happened through the work of Jesus. 
Because of Jesus' righteous life, God raised him from the dead. By whom? By the power of the Spirit, right? And this resurrection by the Spirit into a glorified existence that our Lord Jesus is now forever in, this resurrection by the Spirit wasn't just for Jesus, but as the last Adam, that resurrection experience was also for all of his people. The scriptures tell us that Jesus, in his ascension, received the promised Holy Spirit, and he now gives the Spirit without measure to all who trust in him. And Paul says this profound statement in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus, the last Adam, became a life-giving spirit. What does this mean? I mean, these things just blow our minds, right? What does it mean at the end of the day? It means this, that the spirit who belongs to Christ's resurrection, his resurrection life, that very same spirit is in you now. And what that means is this, that resurrection is not merely something that you await. Resurrection, life, is already at work in you. You were dead in trespasses and sins, but God made you alive by the Spirit. Inwardly, the life of the living and raised Lord Jesus is now ours. But even though this has begun in us, we know acutely, don't we, that it's not yet complete. And you want to know where we see it? With our bodies. (laughs) And this is what Paul speaks about in verse 10. Although the body is dead because of sin. What he's saying here is even though our bodies have not yet been raised and they are in the process of dying as they have been ever since the moment we took our first breath, that they will one day, though, experience the life-giving work of the Spirit. He says the Spirit is life because of righteousness, and the Holy Spirit is the deposit, the guarantee of the fullness of that resurrection life. Look with me at the wonderful words of verse 11. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And you could add there, already. He's already dwelling in you. Your life as a believer may very much look and feel like it did before. But Paul says you have to understand this. The life that you are living now, Christian, even in this fallen body, is spirit-animated, eternal life that has begun in you even now. And God will not stop his work in you by the Spirit until every part of you, body and soul, shares in the glorious life of your risen Lord Jesus. That is the resurrection life that you have now by the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, in the Spirit you have a new verdict You have new ability, and you have new life that will never end, only get better as it goes. And so as we conclude, 
we began by considering that the Christian life is this journey with all kinds of ups and downs and unexpected feelings and circumstances and dangers and trials. And we we may have all these questions, how do I live the Christian life? And we'll talk more about that as we go. But Paul wants us to encounter all of those things with the right vantage point. He says, I want you to find that yellow line. And I want you to know that if you are trusting in Christ, you are in the Spirit. And that means everything is different than how it used to be. Once sin used to condemn you and spoke of how God will judge and punish you. But now your sin, what does it do? It reminds you of the amazing, superabounding grace of God who loved you so much that he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin so that that very sin that you just committed would no longer result in your condemnation. Once you were unable to live in love for God and in love for other people. Even your best works were somehow turned in on yourself and looking to your own resources. But now, believer, you have the Spirit showing you God's ways from within and empowering you as you depend upon him to begin to be who you were made to be. And once the only life that you had was this mortal existence, that is marching toward an end. But now God himself has taken up residence in you by his spirit, never to leave, only to further transform. And what I want to close with is this. Why did all of this happen? We may just think about all the truths of it, all the doctrines of it that I've just spelled out, but if we miss the why, we've missed it all. Scripture reaffirms for us over and over again that this solution came about in this state of being in the Spirit came about because God loved you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. For God demonstrates his own love for us in this. He demonstrates his love in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And even the reception of the Spirit is evidence of God's love. The love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Spirit as a gift, a gift of his grace, simply by faith. All of this status, all of this security of being in the Spirit is really just the result of being loved by God. The Spirit brings us into the love of the Father and the Son for us. And so, brothers and sisters, may we come to continue to know more and more the wonder of that love that has been poured into our hearts through the work of Christ and by the Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we readily confess that our lives often don't match up with the realities of all you have made us to be. But we pray that through your word, you would help us to see more and more clearly all that you have done for us in Christ, that you would assure us of these things, that you would fill us with joy and delight over your love and 
the ways in which you have solved every problem that we have found ourselves in because of Adam's sin and our own. Will you reassure us afresh today of your love and all that you have done in your Son to make us your people and so that we could dwell with you forever as your people, with you as our God. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.